Hi, everybody. This is Jeannie Faulkner, and you're listening to Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics, the podcast where right now there's hardly anything else to talk about. I am a nurse with about 20 years experience working in labor and delivery. I'm a writer and my book, Common Sense Pregnancy, is available in all the usual places like Amazon, bookstores, and of course on my website, jeanfaulkner.com. I'm also a longtime advocate for better maternal health and women's rights all over the world, and I'm the mother of many. So that's where this conversation started and what we talk about on the podcast. This week, we honor International Day of the Girl and Indigenous Peoples Day. Day of the Girl is an opportunity to take note of the power and potential of girls to be world-changing leaders when they're given access to all the rights and privileges they need and deserve. And Indigenous Peoples Day is a reframing of Columbus Day to honor people who actually did discover this country, Indigenous people who had lived here for hundreds of years at least before that other dude showed up. We're also watching the Supreme Court nomination hearing for Amy Coney Barrett, uh, even as we watch news about 12-hour voting lines in early voting locations in Georgia. Tens of millions of early ballots have been cast in the United States, and American citizens um, are overwhelmingly demanding the right to choose our next president before we choose the next Supreme Court seat. We're watching another bullying process like we saw with Brett Kavanaugh's hearing, where a judge that most American people did not want representing Justice for America was seated. It is so time for a power change. Let's all do our part, people. Let's make sure we vote. Now, for the past seven months, billions of people worldwide have forged some sort of quarantine or isolation or socially distant lifestyle. We're hunkered down with our people, with our families, um, which are becoming increasingly multi-generational. And we are spending a lot of time together. Relationships are changing. Things are different now than they've been um, for decades and decades till the last time that it was the social norm that multi-generational families lived together. It's not always a breeze, especially when parents are struggling to wear all the hats they're required to wear these days as parent, partner, teacher, worker, citizen, health coach, etc. It's a lot. And most families are doing all this without much extra support. For brand new parents, it's a lot plus a newborn baby and a new identity as a mom or dad. We're all going through it and we can all use some good solid research information, and guidance on how to do our best at it all. So we're going to talk this week with a guest who is a father, a parenting and relationship researcher, and a tech entrepreneur. We'll take a real quick break, and then we'll get right back on the phone. Matt Larson is a parenting, relationships researcher, technology entrepreneur, investor, and philanthropist. He's been interviewed about the science of well-being on NBC, Fox, SiriusXM, public radio, and websites like Parentology.com and Mom.com. He spends most of his time on the Human Improvement Project, but he's also the chairman of two software companies, plus he's a dad. 
Let's get Matt on the line. Hi, Matt. It's Jeannie. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing good. It's Friday where I am in Portland, Oregon. It's got to be Friday somewhere. Where are you? I am in Colorado, and you're right. It's Friday afternoon. (laughs) It's brave for parents to have have conversations, professional conversations on a Friday afternoon. I don't know about you, but I'm starting to feel a little done with this week. I am too. It's been a long week. I'm looking forward to the weekend. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for coming on and talking to us today. I appreciate it. I've, um, we don't get anywhere near enough men in on the conversation. So I appreciate that quite a bit. My well, first question. Yeah. My first question for you is who are you and what do you do? And disclaimer, I did read your bio before you came on the line. So who are you and what do you do? Sure. So I am a mental health researcher, but we really, focus on a particular question um, at our nonprofit. So we're a nonprofit research institution. We um, do our own research and we fund research uh, in universities, and then we educate the public uh, about that. But we're an organization that really focuses on one single question, and that is, what are the things that make the biggest difference to long-term well-being, particularly for children. So that when children grow up, what's going to most impact their long-term well-being? And part of the, the reason why we started this is that we realized that every week some new study comes out. You know, this week it was blueberries that, hey, blueberries are particularly good for you. And, you know, next week it might be that push-ups are better than sit-ups. And but whatever the the study of the week, it sort of causes us parents, and I'm a parent of, of three. Um, to, you know, rush out and buy blueberries in that case. And then a month later, you know, run out and do something on that. So there's so many of these things that are good for our kids or bad for our kids that it's not really clear which ones really make a big difference and which ones are largely a distraction. And so what we do is we look at research and we do our own research to really figure that out. And it turns out that we have some new technology that allows has allowed science to progress really rapidly, and that is that we can see inside the human brain as we're going through a bunch of activities. And so we could take a mother and a child, for example, and have them have an argument and watch what's happening inside of their brains. How, that how are you watching? I'm sorry. Go, say that. How again. are you watching? So they have technology called fMRI, mm-hmm. uh, which is basically like an MRI machine, but instead of a, a picture, which is what most people think of when they go in for an MRI, it's called an fMRI, which is basically taking a video of your brain. Okay. And okay. so you could, you know, for example, you could have a parent on one end of the phone, the child on the other end of the phone, and the, the parent might be comforting the child, or the parent might be getting onto the child because they're not obeying the teacher or or whatever that is. And we can now watch which regions of the brain light up and, and so on. And that it has really revolutionized uh, relationships. It's revolutionized the science of parenting. And so um, what we basically found out is that there's really only two things, most of which you never hear about that make the most difference in long-term well-being. Um, when we study all the rest of it, we, we've studied things like, you know, getting kids to eat their vegetables, 
um, you know, making sure the room's clean, you know, making sure your kids do their chores, you name it, we've studied it. Although a lot of them are definitely good things, almost it's very rare for any of them to, to move the needle on long-term well-being from what we can tell other than these two, these two main issues. So what, what we tend to do is really focus on um, educating the public on those issues and, and teaching, you know, and doing further research around all the elements of that. Well, that is a really A plus professional description of what the human improvement project does. But when you are not working in that capacity, who are you and what do you do? Tell me a little bit about your off hours. Sure. So I have, um, I have three kids and I'm married and I've been married for 20 years. Uh, my, uh, my oldest is, is almost, uh, turning 18 and I've got a, my youngest is, is 11. Uh, I also have a seven, uh, almost 17 year old in there. So I spend a lot of time with them. With teenagers. That's, that's a full-time thing. That's a full-time thing for sure. It, it definitely is. But, you know, I, I tell you this, all of this research that, that we're doing is, has a lot to do with the science of relationships. It turns out that that's I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, but that's a, that's a huge element of it. And so a lot of it has to do with, well, I'll talk about one of them, which is that is the, the concept that parents should have a goal to have a deep bond with the child and should learn what, what those skills are. Cause it turns out we don't uh, inherently have those skills. A lot of the things that we try to do to build deep bonds actually tear them down. But it turns out that if if we if we if we measure a child who had a deep bond with at least one parent, ideally you know two parents or maybe parent figures if they don't have a, a sort of the more traditional family, those kids are at a a huge advantage and are much more likely to have high long term well being. And so because I know that because you know, I'm very much focused on that. We're really very uh, relationship focused in our family. Everyone's, you know, working to to build a deep bond with the other family members because my children know and my wife knows that that in any family, when you look at two members of the family, if they have a deep bond, both of their long term well being goes up. If they don't have a deep bond, both of their long term well being is is lower. So, you know, when everybody's aware of that, that we either can be close and that's a win-win, or I can just say, I don't like this sibling or, you know, God forbid, I'm not as crazy about this child. And it really lowers both of our, you know, well-being. So at our house, we're sort of, we're really relationship focused. Frankly, my wife and I are, are very close and, you know, we, uh, you know, by sort of following this, this new science, uh, my children and I are, are, are very close. So um, there's a lot of relationship time in, in my family. All right. So that's actually a couple of, <clears throat> excuse me, um, bonding is your number one or, or, or of the two um, things that you discovered that you studied that work towards long-term. Bonding is one. What is the other? Well, so bonding, it's not really bonding. Let me, it, so really it's this, it's a hormone called oxytocin, which has both good and bad uses in our bodies. It's absolutely you know, important. But one of the things that we look at is how much oxytocin did a child have released inside of safe relationships? And so 
Um, a really simple way to look at it is how often was that child hugged by people who were emotionally safe for them? So by people who uh, didn't emotionally ambush them a lot um, and, and that type of thing. So so that's really what that's really the fundamental thing. It's not even the deep bonds. It's this amount of oxytocin released inside of safe relationships. Now, deep bonds are the number one way to do that in a child. So if we look at, like I said, if we look at a child that has one or two uh, deep bonds, they are vastly more likely to have long-term well-being. Um, but um, you can also get it, you know, in other ways. So a child will get more oxytocin if they, well, if, if you think of this gets a little bit into COVID, but if you if you text with somebody, so let's say your child texts with somebody, there's no oxytocin release. If they have a voice phone call, they do get some oxytocin released. If they have a video chat where they're seeing them eye to eye, they'll get even more oxytocin release. And if they're you know, in person with them, interacting with them, sitting across the table from them at a coffee shop, they'll get even more. And then, you know, it kind of goes up from there. If they hold hands with somebody or, you know, give, give their friend a hug, they'll get even more. So that's really the fundamental thing that we look at is, is the first one is oxytocin inside of safe relationships. The second one is called is is cortisol, but again, cortisol is really important in a lot and does a lot of things in our bodies. But it's the what we call the long term unhappiness chemical when it's released be, when a child is nervous that something's going to happen that is going to cause their emotions to suddenly plummet. So. For you know, one example might be a parent is critical of them once a month, and even though it only happens once a month for two minutes, the child's cortisol levels will be raised the entire month whenever they're around that parent because they're nervous it's going to happen again, even though it's most of the time not actually happening. And this happened in my family when I learned this, I, I I have, I have two boys and with my older son, we have always had this playful banter back and forth where we kind of tease each other. And I asked him about it and he said, no, nah, I like it. It is sort of a way that we bond. We kind of, we kind of banter back and forth. But I talked to my younger son and I asked him if he ever feels nervous about it. And he said all the time, dad, he's like, I'm always nervous that you're going to say something that feels like it's making fun of me. And it broke my heart. I mean, I just felt you know, yeah. horrible to, you know, once I learned that this elevated cortisol, you know, is basically one of the two key factors. Um, so yeah, th those are the two factors. It's, it's cortisol, which we call the long-term unhappiness chemical when it's released, when you're nervous that something's about to happen to cause your emotions to plummet and oxytocin is the long-term happiness chemical when it's released in safe relationships. So, you know, you and I have both raised kids to, my kids are adults and um, your kids are, are getting pretty darn close to it. And we know that this parenting gig is a roller coaster, especially, you know, even in the best of times, whenever that was, um, but during times of real, real stress, serious stress, it's a roller coaster. So how do you adapt for that if you want to keep in mind oxytocin and cortisol levels in your kids and how you are relating to them. How do you adapt? Sure. So when we 
so we have this, you know, com- these completely free apps, no advertisements. We're a nonprofit. Uh, me and my co-founder work completely for free. Most of our experts work for free. So we teach those those skills. But what people will, you know, report afterwards, and we of course test since we're a research institutes and we test them afterwards, is that those highs and lows go down dramatically. So when you're able to understand the science of deep bonds, both with the kids and with the two, you know, if, there, if there's two people in a romantic relationship, you, those highs and lows are far less high and far less low. You'll, you'll see that um, arguments, um, flare-ups um, don't last nearly as long. They, 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 they go down quickly. And one of the reasons why they do that is when you get into a fight with somebody that you live with, but that you don't have a deep bond with, there's a, a bit of an injury on both sides. You don't really understand that that there's this tension of not actually having that deep bond. But when you get into a fight with them, you're more like you, you don't have a close bond anyway. So it's so you don't worry about jeopardizing that. But when both of you understand how to the science of really building those those close relationships, that person becomes an emotional safe haven for you. And so you actually will go to them in times of distress. In fact, that's one of the, the main things that we talk about and teach is that moments of distress are when relationships are torn down or built up. They're not going to Disney World. They're, they're not the, you know, taking them to the park. The, the, the most important moments in parenting are when your child is upset. And the most important moments in your relationship are when they're upset. And so when you learn how to do that and you're the person that you're in this relationship with knows how to do that, whether it's your child or your, your partner, you, you know, they're your safe haven when you had a rough day. Like when I have a rough day and one of my family members will say, Hey, dad's having a hard day. And it's like, everyone's head snaps around almost like a lion looking at a gazelle. They snap, you know, they turn and they will sort of converge and try to help, you know, somebody might be, Hey dad, you know, you want to go on a bike ride and, uh, and you know, they'll, they'll come give me a hug. I mean, so it, so they, the highs and lows, you know, don't have to be as high and and low as they have been. Now, of course, you're still going to have, you're still going to go through struggles. Kids still have developmental phases. They, they still are trying to figure out who they are. So of course it doesn't, you know, solve everything by any means, but it makes things dramatically um, easier and more peaceful because everyone subconsciously knows that you know the other people in that family are the are the the, the safe havens that they come home to when they recover from the difficulties of the world. Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned you know kids are going to be going through different phases and stages, and kids act out in different ways at different ages that can drive parents to distraction. And I think it's usually connected to either the parent or the child has an unmet need. And what's your advice for helping kids during those tantrum times? You know, it can be from toddler to teen years. How do you help parents? So the, the most important skill that addresses both of those two issues is, is learning how to help somebody process their emotions when they're upset. And so that skill, if I like, if I had one wish that the entire planet would, would, would have a skill and know how to do it, it would absolutely be that skill that they would be very good at noticing 
when a loved one is upset, that that would be one of their highest priority things is my loved one is upset. It is my job to show as fast as I can that I notice and that I care and then that I have the skills to help them in those moments. So what people report and, you know, you can see all the, the tons of reviews that we have on our, on our app talking about this is, is, is exactly those situations. It's the tantrum situations. It's all of these difficult life phases. They, they came home from school and their, uh, their best friend, you know, decided they weren't their best friend anymore. Those are the most critical moments, not for a parent to get through, but for a parent to look at that and go, hey, if I handle this correctly, this is going to build our deep bond and this is going to increase this child's long-term well-being. So rather than looking at those issues as how do I get through this, this this is just a mess. It really is a situation where you're building a foundation that that will will basically be the basis of your your deep bond for the rest of your life. Because what one of the things that we say is if you're not there for the broken toy moments, you won't be invited to the broken heart moments later. Yeah. So yeah. So learning the 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 skills to do that um is is really fundamental. And a sad thing is if for parents who don't learn this skill, the odds that a you know that a particular parent will have a bond with a particular child when that child is adult is not very good. It is unlikely if they don't learn these skills that they will. Now, of course they will with some kids, particularly maybe the easy child, they might have a deep bond with them, but they are unlikely statistically to have a deep bond if they haven't learned the skills to build a deep bond. Um, and it, you know, it just turns out those are so vitally important. Yeah. Well, you're talking about leading with empathy. And I think that for a lot of parents, the idea that you can put down your guard and just be really empathetic with your child. You can give your, yourself permission to not parent in a domineering way. For a lot of people, they don't learn that. They don't learn to lead with empathy and to let themselves feel feel into what's happening with their kid, you know? That's that's right. I mean, what we what we really teach is sort of the step-by-step approach to do that because sometimes what parents do is they they are trying to help. They are maybe even trying to be empathetic, but they just don't know how. Right. So they make these mistakes that we didn't even know were mistakes until we got these fMRI machines. But for example, a a child might be upset and the parent tries to solve the problem. And when we look at that situation, you know, in an fMRI machine, you would think that, you know, a parent helping a child or, or you know, a, one adult helping another adult, that that would, that would calm their brain down, right? It would calm down uh, and that would make, that would help them. But the reality is it doesn't. When somebody is upset and you try to solve that, the threatened parts of their brain light up. And that was a confusing thing. It was like, wait, why is that? If somebody's trying to help them, but it turns out that's not the right response in that you know situation. When when their their primitive portions of their brain are active because they're upset, that turns out to be you know the wrong approach. And we you know we talk about the right approach in the app. But um, another really common one is minimizing feelings. So if a child breaks a toy, and the parent's really trying to help, and they say, look, this isn't something to get upset about. You've got better toys here. Let me here. Let's bring this other toy in and let's play with that instead. 
um, this, you know, that toy wasn't very good anyways. You haven't played with it for a month. When you minimize, um, which again, the parents has good intentions, again, the threatened part of that child's brain lights up. And that's a, a moment where it's tearing down the bond and it makes the child report that my parent doesn't get me. And it that turns out to not be a good thing at all in terms of that child's long-term well-being. What you ideally are able to do is, is work on these skills. And the, the moment that sort of one of my happiest moments is when, when one of my kids will say that. They'll say, dad, you get me. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, is, is such an impactful moment. But I know that, you know, I only was able to do that when I learned, you know, the research behind this and sort of the steps to take. So empathy is, is really what we're teaching. It is probably the most fundamental skill of parents. I completely agree with that. Um, it's just, it's not as easy as it sounds. It turns out there's some, some very specific things that uh, we can be well-meaning about that, that really end up, uh, you know, hurting the child rather than helping them. So tell us about them. Tell us about, about the ways that work. So the, the, the thing that like, one of the things that I'll kind of show both sides of it, that's another mistake. And then I'll get kind of some of those others is, is siding with the enemy. And so let's say, you know, the child has an issue with some other party, right? A friend or something. And you kind of point out, you you put yourself maybe in it almost like a judge's position and say, uh, yeah, but you kind of did this, didn't you? And you kind of take the other person's side. And it turns out that that's, again, one of those situations that really lights up the threatened parts of our child's brain. So one of the positive things that you can do is find a way to side with them. Now, it doesn't mean you side completely with them. And there are exceptions where you shouldn't side with them at all. Like if you had a child who you know, was really malicious and, you know, went and bashed somebody over the head, there are situations you shouldn't do this. But in most situations, you find some way to side with them when they're still upset, when their primitive portions of their brain are still activated, still in charge, like the amygdala, um, then you, then, then you find some way to side with them. Instead of minimizing their emotions, like minimizing I talked about earlier, it's really important to name and validate their emotions. So um, we have these emotion lists that we talk about how you don't want to use broad terms like mad or sad or bad. You want to really get into these very specific emotions. So you might say to the child, uh, you know, are you frustrated that, you know, that your friend said they were going to sit next to you at lunch and, and didn't? And then were you embarrassed when you were waiting at the the lunch table and everyone was looking at you and, you know, they, they went and sat, you know, somewhere else. And did it just make you sad that, you know, that they did that to you? And are you worried that you lost your friendship? So when you start getting into that, what you're actually helping do is you're helping their logical parts of their brain calm down the primitive parts of that, of their brain. So you're literally helping them process that experience and you're building a bond with them uh, because when somebody can identify your emotions, it turns out that as humans, we most identify ourselves with our emotions. So if somebody said to me, I don't like your hair, that would probably bother me. But if somebody essentially says my feelings are wrong, that 
to the human brain feels like as much of an attack as you can almost do other than a physical attack to me. So when somebody validates my feelings, what they're really doing is validating that I am a good enough person. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, learning the skills of helping them unpack their feelings, label their feelings, understand why they had those feelings, um, that is what you want to do, you know, instead of minimizing feelings and really the, the skill that is, you know, most indicative of, you know, if that, you know, child will grow up, uh, you know, and have long-term well-being is how good their parents are at the, those sets of skills. All right. So, oh, my dog is going to chime in on this. Sorry about that. <laughs> yeah. So we're in a pandemic here. We're at a time of extreme stress all over the world, but you know, here in the U.S., very much so. And let's talk to parents about that a, a, a little bit more. You alluded to COVID, the COVID thing earlier, but let's talk to parents about that. Right. So COVID, you know, when we took, we look at those two areas of things that most affect long-term well-being. COVID is basically making both of them worse in some way. So I'll talk about the negative first, and then I'll talk about how this actually, in some ways, is is probably a good thing. But COVID is making both of those two key things worse. So on the stress side of it, because we're more cooped up in our house, um, our you know the family members are you know agitated because of you know the, the restrictions and so on. So there's more stress in the house. Family members are more likely to yell at each other and that type of thing. So that raises those you know that the cortisol levels and that that's not good. On the oxytocin side, about you know basically relate you know safe, having safe relationships and interacting with them. You can't do that as much, right? Kids aren't able to go to school maybe at all, or maybe, you know, as many days of the week as they used to. So kids are getting hit on both sides with this. Now, what people will often ask is, well, what's the things that they need to do related to COVID? And how I describe it is like, if your child had a broken leg, would, you know, and you haven't taken them to the hospital yet, you go, oh, they just broke their leg. What do I do? It wouldn't change uh, the fact that wouldn't, stop being your top priority because it was COVID. Like that's your top priority to get their leg fixed, whether it's in COVID or out. And this is the same thing. The The most important thing to do with your child is exactly the same inside of COVID versus out. It's just even more important in COVID. It's even more important that they have parent that they are improving their relationships with their parents, that their parents know how to help them process all these extra feelings related to COVID um, so the, the good news with this is that parents are paying more attention to their kids' mental health. Like pre COVID, there's so many things to worry about. They weren't, you know, as worried about it, but this has really drawn a focus on it. And what we're finding is a lot of parents, even though they're drawn in by COVID, they're actually making long-term fixes that will help their children for the rest of their lives. So I'm actually in a weird way, maybe it's because I'm a glass half full type of person, but I actually see it as a good thing, you know, for a lot of kids whose parents will, you know, make an effort. Um, those, those children will actually be dramatically better off um, once their parents, you know, learn how to do this. Yeah. Yeah. It's a tough year, but I see a lot, a lot of silver linings, especially with having older kids. Yeah. Yeah. How how so do you mean with older kids? <clears throat> well, my kids, my youngest is 20. 
and then I have um, four kids. And several of the kids have returned home as adults um, because of economic reasons, health reasons. And um, we're having the opportunity to be adults together in a way that we never would have had otherwise if COVID hadn't happened. Now, I'm not saying, oh, yay, that, you know, thank God for COVID because this happened. Nothing like that. It's just, it's one of the silver linings is that we get to have those kinds of relationships with our adult kids and uh, help them to navigate these these difficult times. And I do kind of think that what we're seeing is a different way that we are structuring what family community uh, means right now. It, you know, for generation upon generation, um, for hundreds of years behind us, families lived really close together and they supported each other through all of the wild and scary times. Um, and then we had a period of time where families dispersed. And we're now seeing that families are coming back together in different formations. And we're creating much closer, um, we're circling the, the wagons around our communities. And it's interesting. I think it's a really fascinating time to be alive. I do too. And I think, you know, with the type of research that I do of sort of knowing this is a, a bit of a, a side topic, but but actually it's sort of the fundamentals of what I've been talking about is that a lot of what makes humans have long-term well-being is that you have to really understand what happened when we were in a tribal society. Mm -hmm. And there turns out that there's just all of these clues when you look at it from that perspective that start explaining long-term well-being. Like that's kind of what we think, you know, cortisol and oxytocin are all about. They're you, you essentially you get cortisol anytime you're sort of a uh, low, your something happens that makes you feel less important to the group or excluded from the group, and you get oxytocin whenever something happens that makes you feel more included. And so, you know, as we've known all this, it, it, I, it I've also thought about this concept of families getting further and further apart and saying, well, I like this house, so I'm going to go live, you know, 20 minutes away in a different part of the city. I think it you know does have some negative consequences and it's not the way our brains are built and so you know I've thought about when you know if our kids stay here in the you know the Denver you know Boulder area where we live we'll probably sell our house and you know go move in you know to be in in maybe two doors down or you know maybe try to get a bu- you know a bunch of our kids families when they have them on their own close together because it I think that that's right, that we've we've made this mistake of thinking the more independent I can be, the more distant I can be, the more I can show I don't need what other, you know, I don't need all these other people around, I think is 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 having a toll on our uh, mental health and certainly isn't optimal. No, <laughs> this is a tester year. Nothing has ever been done like this before in, in any right. of our lives. And um, it's it's a testing year. Yeah. Well, Matt, we're coming towards the the end of our conversation, but I wanted to ask you a couple of other questions. Okay. Um, one of them is, we've been talking about well-being, and um, well-being has a different meaning depending on what uh, your industry is, what your perspective is. Can you define it kind of succinctly? Yes. Um... 
Yeah. So when we study well-being, we're looking at, we'll, we'll test um, for anxiety, depression, anger issues. Um, we have, uh, we'll use, uh, there's some standardized life satisfaction scores. Um, I'm probably missing, I'm, I am missing one or two, but most of our measures are, are basically the absence of Oh, drug and alcohol addiction. Those types of issues are, are definitely a big one. Risky behavior is a big area that, that we test. So when you think about those kind of things, you know, mental health issues like anxiety, depression, or risky behavior, we're, what we're really doing in a, a lot of our metrics have to do with, you know, that something has, is, you know, isn't optimal uh, in an adult uh, life. But yeah, we have standard scales and that, that we've basically asked a bunch of experts to say, what is uh, well-being? And, and that's what they've told us. All right. All right. Great. So what else do you want listeners to know? Oh, boy, so much. There's always so much to know. Um, I think, you know, one, maybe one item is that what we find is that parents tend to have one of two goals. Most parents have the a, a primary goal. Their number one goal is to influence their child. And um, when that happens, the child detects that. They're smart enough to know that my parent is constantly trying me to trying to get me to make the same decisions they would make if they were in my shoes. Um, when that is our primary goal, um, the the child will not have tend not to have a deep bond with us. Because if you think about it for yourself as an adult, if you had a friend who was constantly trying to change you, is that really somebody you want to have a close relationship? Uh, probably not. And also, is that somebody that if you have a problem, are you going to go to that person for advice? Probably not. You don't want to get it. You get enough advice from that as all. So it turns out most parents are in that boat. When we When we test them, that is their primary goal. Now, that isn't all parents. There are parents that for some of their children, their primary goal is to build the deep bond with the child. Now they of course still have influence in them as a secondary or tertiary goal, but the child knows and the parent really knows when we ask questions in different ways that the deep bond is the highest priority. Now in those cases, the, the parent gets not only the deep bond, but also the influence. It's shocking. You get either both or you get neither one. Mm-hmm. Um, and, the, and again, you can kind of understand this, you know, as an adult, if you think about an adult friend, if you have a, a best friend, somebody who really you know cares about having a relationship with you, even though they may not be the best person for advice, they're often the first place that you go to for advice because you know they really care about you and care about the relationship. And so um, that's, that's one thing that I think is, you know, sort of important for parents to realize is you, you of course are going to want to influence your kids, but it should be a, 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 a distant second to, um, to really wanting to just have a, a close lifelong relationship with them. That's wonderful advice. Where can listeners learn more about the human improvement project? So our apps are really the best, uh, the best place for that. So we have an app called The Happy Child, and we have an app called In Love While Parenting. And you can go to any you know app store or play store and probably just type in parenting. We're usually number one. We're the number one uh, parenting app in the world, so it's pretty easy to find us. 
But that's what we'd really recommend. It's completely free. There's no ads. Um, you know, read the reviews. We fluctuate between a 4.9 and a 5.0 rating, just depending on the day. Uh, but we've really we've had we've had a lot of of experts donate their time um, to make this really high quality, really resonate, have a lot of you know behavioral change. It's in 16 different languages, used in over 165 countries. So that's really what I would encourage people to do. I promise you it will make a huge difference in the long-term well-being for your kids. We see it over and over again in our reviews. One of the most common terms people use is life-changing. And the reality is that's what it should be. We set out to find the most important things that would affect long-term well-being. We, we're pretty sure we found them. So that's exactly what should happen um, is that. All right. Okay. Our rapid fire roundup questions are, how do you fill in the blank? Nobody ever told me that. Nobody ever told me that. Um, hugs are important as they are. Oh, that's a really good answer. Last question then is, where do you stand in the world of fatherhood? I, I, I hope that I stand right at the intersection of uh, research and the ability to uh, educate the public. And experience. And experience. Yeah, yeah. Well, Matt, it's been really nice to talk to you. I appreciate it. That's it for this week, everybody. We want to say thanks to our guest, Matt Larson, and you can learn more about his work at the Human Improvement Project. You can learn more about me at genefaulkner.com. Find us on Instagram and Facebook at Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics, and email your questions to gene at genefaulkner.com. Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics is produced by Recluse Records. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk again next week. 